following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Last Sunday was a lot of fun. Um, after some great adventures and after a wonderful wedding of Mr. and Mrs. Ryan White, uh, congratulations, Ryan. I, I guess it didn't work out a week into it. Where's Mary Celeste? No, I'm just kidding. Um, great wedding in Kansas City, and last Sunday... Uh, after missing a flight on Saturday and traveling on Sunday morning when you guys are getting started in worship, about 9.30, I was somewhere 30,000 feet above Kansas somewhere. And it's interesting uh, because, of course, when you're in the air, your phone doesn't get any messages, text messages, phone calls, anything like that. And so when you land, if this has happened to you before you land, if you've missed stuff, it all just starts coming in, right? It starts flooding in. And, and so that's what was happening to me. I was praying for you all and praying for for Andy and Kyle and the worship team and everybody as, as you all were worshiping together. I missed being with you. Um, it, was, it was an adventure to be in Chicago and lay over there, and, but I, I really wanted to be with you all. So I land in, I land in Phoenix finally as my plane gets there and, and my phone starts buzzing and it starts uh, getting all those messages. But it was interesting to scroll through those because normally you would get messages as they were happening, but I was getting them like an hour, hour and a half delayed. And so I was able to see the progression of all of these in one shot. And so it was just fun seeing the, the conversation develop. It started like this. Um, hey, Pete, uh, sorry about your travel plans. I hope you make it home safely. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. And I just keep scrolling down. And I said, hey, Pete, church is about to start now. Uh, glad Andy's able to fill into you. Glad things are working out. Hope to see you soon. Scroll down again. Hey, Pete, Andy's doing a great job. Travel safe. You know, next one. Hey, Andy's, yeah, Andy's just as great as you. Take your time coming home. <laughs> And then finally, the last one, hey, Pete, Andy's playing at church, and we're all going with him. So, so that was my day. But, but from the bottom of my heart, uh, just Andy, thank you. Uh, it, is, it is an honor to, to labor with you in teaching of God's Word. Thank you. I gave him like eight hours' notice. And I'd like to say, you know, for eight hours' notice, you did a great job. Uh, but really, for like two weeks' notice, you, you did a great job if you had that much time. Um, so God is good, and um, it's great to be back to worship with you. And Kyle, too, not as an afterthought, but thanks for keeping everything together and, and, and doing that. So we're blessed. Um, what a great thing God is doing here at Holy Cross. But let's open up in our Bibles as we continue in, in our series, 1 Corinthians. What a great book as we, we launch into this now in our third week, and we're through the introduction. We're starting to get into the meat of this book, this, this letter that Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. And as a reminder, Paul's planted this church... In this city called Corinth, they're divided in many ways and for many reasons. And Paul writes to encourage them, to challenge them, to remind them of the grace of God that they have received in Christ. That this grace of God ought to transform them continually into the image of Christ. And the challenges they face, as we discover together, are not much different than the ones we face today. What a timeless letter and a timeless truth for all of us. And so let's approach this text with, with open ears and hearts in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And there are Bibles in front of you on the rack and the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible and you're new with us and you're just checking us out, please take that Bible home. It's a gift from us to you. Um, otherwise, you can just follow along and then just leave it where, where it was. Um, let's start reading in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that as we get into your word, that it would impress upon our hearts and minds something meaningful, something new, something to remind us of who you are and how we should see you and view you and trust in you. We all have wisdoms of all different kinds. We have ways of of living our life, but your way is the way we need to follow. Help us to know what that looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we look at the cross, and you notice some of the songs that we've been singing that Kyle put together all about the cross, saturated with the meaning of the cross and what it is to us. And therefore, the cross, as we look through Scripture, has become the symbol of Christianity. It's become the icon or the logo, so to speak, of Christianity. The cross is a Christian symbol. It's this identifying brand. But do we really understand the meaning of the cross and what it means when we look at the cross and when we see the cross? It's, it's an interesting symbol, isn't it? After all, the cross is a tool of capital punishment. It's a tool of crucifixion of execution. And the act of, ex- of crucifixion in this Roman time was one of gruesome and bloody and horrific procedures. It was reserved for slaves and criminals and murderers and robbers and traitors of the state. It was the most painful and powerful expression of capital punishment that there was. The Romans in Jesus' day perfected capital punishment. They perfected the craft of killing a person and making sure that it sent a message to everybody around them. You don't want to do what they did. That's the symbol of the cross. That symbol many of you probably wear around your necks or on your t-shirts or on your earrings. You go into a jewelry store, you find a cross even with diamonds or made out of fine metal and gold and silver and platinum and on a nice, beautiful chain of sorts. You know, good luck going to a jewelry store and finding those diamond-studded hangman's noose that you were looking for, or a pair of electric chair earrings, or the guillotine pendant, or the lethal injection table miniature version for your bookcase at home. That would be pretty creepy if you wanted to wear something like that. Hey, I like your electric chair earrings. Where'd you get those? He went to Jared's. (laughs) You don't see that, but the cross is a symbol of execution, of capital punishment. It is bloody and gruesome and painful, and yet somehow we we don't see that every time we look at it. The image of the cross is the, and the message of the cross has enormous meaning that I think the modern church has lost to some extent. And if you look at biographies, much is 
Look at any biography. Some of you like biographies. I love reading biographies. And you read it, and, and, and it talks about their life and all about their life. And then at the very end, it talks briefly about their death and their passing. And the bulk of all of the meaning of everything was their life. But when you look at the Gospels, when you look at the writers who wrote the Gospels, recalling the life and ministry of Jesus, as you get closer and closer to the death of Christ, it slows down. And they skip years, they skip decades in the life of Jesus. You see, he was born, and then all of a sudden he's 12, and then all of a sudden he's 30. And then that last week of his life dominates so much of the Gospel, so much of the Bible. The opposite is true for biographies. We're here, the death of Jesus is the thing that the writers want us to focus on. The killing, the execution of Jesus is the thing that's important. It almost comes to a screeching halt when you get to the Bible and read about the death of Jesus. It's like every minute is documented. The plain emphasis of Scripture is centered on the reason and the manner of Jesus' death on the cross. The meaning of the cross of Christ was lost in the days of the Corinthian church, and it can be lost today too. And so that's why Paul brings it up to remind them of what the central meaning of the scriptures are and what we should be placing our focus on in our lives. He says, if you look, if you took a true and honest look at the cross of Christ and understood what happened on that cross, you'd only have one of two possible reactions to it. You would think that it's stupid. You would think that it's foolish. You would think that it's just plain moronic. Or you would be transformed by it. So the same responses are available to you and I. As we look at the cross, what reaction do we have to it? And if we take an honest look, we only have two possible reactions. Either we have to look at it, understand it, and say, it's stupid, or we embrace it and are transformed by the power of God. I believe that we have some different people here. Some of you have maybe problems with the cross. You're skeptical, skeptical, you're confused, you're trying to figure out its meaning. There's a certain level of doubt as to the crucifixion of Christ and what, what, what meaning and bearing it has on your life and on history. Others of you might embrace it wholeheartedly. You, you know it, you understand it, you embrace it. But here's where I imagine most of you are today. The, you believe in the message of the cross. You understand it, you know it. But you live without the power of the cross. And so there's part of that belief, part of that understanding, part of that transformation going on. But Paul wants us to see something so much more. And so we see, if we see the cross for what it is, here's what we'll see today. There's three things that we're going to see. In the cross, we see great power. In the cross, we see great pleasure. And in the cross, we see great hope. And so in the cross, we see great power. Paul begins this in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The word of the cross, the meaning of the cross, it's like the cross is preaching. The cross, as we look and consider it, it's telling us something. It's telling us a story. And that message has one bold and very clear message. That on this cross, Jesus Christ was killed for sinners. The message of the cross can't be any more simple than that. And this great news, this is great news, but not for everybody. For some, it is very 
troubling news. For some, it's very offensive. Paul uses this phrase, a stumbling block. He says, for the Jews, it's a stumbling block. You can almost imagine this imagery as he's talking about this word. So you're going about your life, and then you hit the cross, and you trip over it, because it's just so confounding to your, your idea of how life really is. It trips you up. It confuses you, because you're on this pursuit in your life to to be great, to grow, and all sorts of things. And then you hit the cross, and the cross says, here is where everything in your life becomes insignificant, and it's the power of God that you must rely on. That word, stumbling block, in, in the Greek, more literally means scandalous. The word is, in Greek, scandalon. That's where we get the word scandal. We look at these scandals, right? Political scandals or whatever. A scandal is something that is extremely offensive. And for some, the cross is that way. It's a scandal. Why is it offensive? Because the cross says, if we understand what happened on there with Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did, it says to the world and everybody who gazes on it, your attempt to salvation apart from me is insufficient. All of your attempts to earn favor and salvation from God apart from the cross of Christ is insufficient. Are you a smart person? The cross says you're not smart enough. Are you a strong person? The cross says you're not strong enough. Are you a kind person? The cross says you're not kind enough. Are you a generous person? The cross says you're not generous enough. You see how the cross then When people understand it, it is thoroughly offensive. Well, sure I'm smart. Sure I'm good. Sure I'm kind and generous. That's got to be good for something. God will reward me because of that. The cross says, apart from me, it is insufficient. Those are wrong things to say to these people in the Corinthian church. And I'll explain why. It was this mixed crowd at this church. There were Jews. There were Greeks. There were Jewish converts to Christianity. There were Greek and Roman converts to Christianity, two very different values and different worldviews and two different worlds colliding into one. The Greeks, they valued learning, they valued sophistication and wisdom and philosophy and poetry and deeper insights and deeper mysteries. These are the ones that would just study and learn and, and learn how to be good speakers and good learners. And, and they, they put so much value on knowing things, so much so that if someone knew something, there was almost this amount of deity to them. They said, surely you are from God. God is working in you because of your intelligence and your wisdom and your insight into life. So it was therefore moronic, literally, to say your energy putting into these things are insufficient towards your salvation. Nonsense! That's ridiculous! Who would say such a thing? And then you have the Jews that valued something totally different. They were waiting for their Savior. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for their King who would come in and protect them from all outside and inside threats. Someone that would establish a kingdom and destroy all their enemies. Someone that was strong and courageous. Someone that was that picture of just that that iron king ruling with an iron fist. And then here comes Jesus, born as a poor, homeless man. And then he is killed on the cross and he doesn't do anything about it. And they say, this is ridiculous. Our king will not do that. Our king is strong. He is not weak. He would take himself down from that cross if he were truly God. God would not die. It was laughable. Can you think for a second how unwise it sounds to tell the story 
of the cross to somebody. Think of the story of the Bible. Think of the story of the cross. It starts like this. There's a virgin, and she gets pregnant. And she gives birth, and that baby is God. And they weren't, wasn't born in a great place or in a nice hotel. It was born in a, in a barn. And he would live his life very insignificant. He would be poor for most of it. He would be homeless for some of it. He would grow up to be a man, and he would hang out with other poor homeless fishermen. And he would teach people about the kingdom of God. And he would say things like, if you want eternal life, you have to trust in me, and that's the only way. He said, if you want to get to the Father, you must come through me. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he's murdered. Think about the message of the cross. It seems really bizarre. Somewhat unbelievable. Oh, and all you need to do is believe in him, and this homeless, poor, somewhat weak of a man will forgive all your sins. I remember my very last day at the University of Arizona. My very last class, my very last day, my very last thing I had to do and turn in before I graduated. I remember it so clearly because it was such a uh, drastic and important class and time in my life. I was a psychology major. The class was titled Death and Dying. I don't recommend it. It's a miserable class. The project was to give a presentation to the entire class on any topic related to death and dying that has been valuable to you in your course of study through this class. And so I thought, I don't want to do this assignment. I I said, it's it's uncomfortable, it's sad, it's, it's somewhat bizarre. I mean, I have to get up and talk about what death and dying means to me. So here's what I did. I started my presentation with this line because I thought, it's my last class. What are they going to do? I've been a great student this whole time. I've been an A student. They have no reason to, to flunk me or whatever. They can't flunk me. And so I stood up in front of the class, and I started out with this line. I'm going to tell you why I'm not afraid to die. And I spent probably 20 minutes telling them in so many words why I was not afraid to die because a man named Jesus died on a cross. You can imagine how silent it was. You can imagine how uncomfortable it was. (laughs) And you could hear a pin drop at the end of my presentation. And it was silent, not because people were compelled and just enthralled by my presentation. They were silent because this is what they thought, and they thought one thing. This guy's a moron. (laughs) This guy is an idiot. When is this over? And it was just one of those really awkward things where the professor then comes up and says, well, thank you. Um, who's next? Right? And I left, and I got an A, and, and that was that. I was uncomfortable. They were uncomfortable. The words coming out of my mouth seemed, this is nonsense. I am going to die. We're all deteriorating and perishing. And because I believe that a man died, not only a man, but the incarnate God died on the cross, that my sins would be forgiven and I would go to heaven? Silly. Of course we would imagine that this is somewhat moronic. When I was done, I was glad because I had been authentic, I had been real, I didn't want to talk about anything else. And who knows, I hope that God has done something in that. I hope that people were listening and, and some were compelled to take a second look. I, 
I don't know what kind of expressions or reactions there were to it, but it doesn't sound right. And Paul reminds us something in this passage that we read. He said it doesn't sound right because it was purposed to not sound right. He quotes the prophet Isaiah in chapter um, 1, verse 19. He said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. It was God's plan all along to make our intelligence, our strength, our wisdom insufficient to be saved. It was God's plan all along to have a wisdom that would sound so moronic that it would have to be believable and only created by the true God. You can't make up a story like that. The power of salvation of our sins being forgiven, our peace with God, is not found in us. And God purposed that it would be that way. He created a plan from all of creation that it would not rest on us, that it would not depend on us, that it would not depend on a level of of morality or strength or intelligence or experience in our life that could earn God's favor. He made it so it would completely depend on us and he made it so that it would remove any doubt in our mind that when we heard the story and believed in it it would have to be true that it didn't depend on us how are you certain it doesn't depend on you because there was a virgin and she had a baby and that baby was god and he died he didn't do anything wrong and then he died i had no part in that The power of salvation, for those whom God has chosen, it's not a crazy story, but it's joy. That's what Paul says. He says, for those who are confused, for those who are perishing, for those who don't know God, when you hear that story, it's bizarre. But those who trust in God, for those who believe it, it is power, it is joy, it is salvation, it's gladness, it's peace. If Christianity is for the wise, then none of us would make it, not you or me, because the wisdom of God is so much greater than us. Paul says here, he says, that the wisdom of God is, is the, the, the foolishness of God is greater than our wisdom. So what Paul is saying is, the dumbest that God can get is way better than the smartest that you and I can get. You see, we live our life and we think we're doing well and that we're gaining much and we're growing and we come up with great ideas about how life is. We all have our own ideas of, oh, this is what is right and this is what is good. And the best that we can come up with is just about as the worst that God can come up with. If Christianity is for the strong, then none of us will make it because God's strength is so much greater. If Christianity is for the righteous, then none of us will make it because We may be good, but the Bible says that we're not good enough. And when we see the cross, we see that God is able to do the very thing that you and I cannot do. We can't save ourselves. Verse 21, Paul says, The world did not know God through wisdom, so it pleased God to use preaching to save those who believe. And so secondly, let's look at the second thing the cross shows us. In the cross, we see great pleasure. It's amazing what we are capable of. As people, isn't it? As humans. It's amazing what we can comprehend and create and make. We're capable of knowing the genetic code and looking at chromosomes under a microscope and putting a man on the moon and building skyscrapers and creating masterpieces of art and making music and song and doing incredible things with science and math and engineering. 
amazing things. Right now, there's a robot on Mars 60 million miles away, just roaming around, picking up dust. Right now. I saw a few weeks ago that doctors were growing an ear on a lady's forearm. Yeah. She didn't have an ear, so they said, we'll grow you one on your arm. And you look at it, it's an ear growing on her arm. And they're going to cut it off and put it on her head. And she said, now I have an ear. It's incredible what we're capable of doing. There's more technology right now in your iPhone that was ever present in the 60s when they put a man on the moon. There's more technology in your phone than there was in all the computers in NASA in the 60s when they put a man on the moon. Look at what we're capable of. But there's one thing that we are not good at. We're not good at knowing God. Paul reminds us clearly, the world did not know God through wisdom. So it pleased God to reveal himself to us through the cross. When we look at the cross of Christ, we see something that other religions cannot offer. The unwavering pleasure of a righteous God to die for sinners. In the cross, we see God initiating with us, revealing himself to us, coming to us because we are incapable of coming to him. And left to ourselves and left to our own wisdom and left to our own intelligence and our own experience and our own strength, we will never get further to God than we are right now. You can walk into any bookstore and look on the shelves and all these books help us fix all the different things in our lives to be a better father and mother and employee and a better self and a better organizer to get thinner, to get more organized, to get more disciplined. All these things help us fix us. And all the time we're trying to fix so much stuff. We can do, all, we can do the best that we can and fix all those things in our life and still end up separated from God. The greatest importance is to know Christ and that he has fixed on the cross something that we can't fix ourselves. You may be familiar with this story in Mark chapter 2. If not, it's a brief story. It's a great story. There's this crippled man, and they're following around Jesus. And Jesus, at this point, has really bursted out on the scene in his ministry. He's somewhat of a rock star. He's healing people. People are flocking to him, and he goes into a house. And while he's in that house, people are just swarming him. By the hundreds, they're cramming in this house. It says that the door is blocked, and this crippled man wants to get close to Jesus because he is healing people that are crippled, and he's paralyzed. And so his friends, four of his friends, what they do is they, they climb up the roof, and they rip part of the roof off, and they start to lower his friend down into the room where Jesus is standing. You picture this room, and it's just crammed in here. There's, you can't see any of the exits. It's so full. And all of a sudden, the roof starts to get ripped off, and here comes this paralyzed man being lowered down. And when Jesus saw the faith, the faith of the man, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now imagine you're the man. What are you thinking? That's all well and good, but my friends dragged me up here, not so that, because they cared about my sins, but because they cared about my legs. Fix my legs. You see, and the religious leaders are there too, and they say to Jesus, Who do you think you are that you can forgive sins? And Jesus says something to them. He says, what is easier to do? To tell, tell someone their sins are forgiven or to tell someone to get up and walk? And the implied answer is, obviously, it's easy to tell someone that their sins are forgiven because you can't know for sure. But if you tell somebody 
get up and walk, well, then the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. If they get up and walk, then you're right. If they don't, then you're a liar. And so he says, so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. And the man picks up his mat and he walks. All he could have hoped for was some new legs that worked. He heard that Jesus was healing people and he wanted to give it a shot. So much so that they would destroy someone else's property, that they'd be lowered down. He said, I want new legs and I want to be fixed. And he left not only, forg- not only walking, but forgiven. And I imagine, what if we could meet him today? What if this man could come and talk to us today and talk about his story and about that experience? If he came to us and gave us a testimony, hi, I'm the paralyzed man in Mark 2. And <clears throat> I imagine he might say, when my friends lowered me down from the roof, all I could hope for is legs that worked. But I'm here to tell you now that I will give up all of that for the joy of knowing Christ and the reality of knowing that my sins are forgiven and I stand before God as blessed and free and without guilt. All my life I wanted to fix this and what he gave me was something I could not get myself, but it was the thing that captured my complete joy. The Christian has a different perspective when it comes to the cross of Christ, because of that experience, we see then life as it is, and we see that, yes, this story is somewhat ridiculous, but it is my hope, it is my power, it is my joy, and everything else is is secondary. Everything else that I want to fix is secondary. But those who don't know Christ and don't know the power of the cross and the pleasure of the cross, we just try to fix everything else and hope that it works. I became a Christian. I can point it to a day. I know not everybody has that experience, and that's perfectly okay. If anything, it's for the glory of God that it changes in different people. We experience God in different ways, and he reveals himself to us in different ways. But for me, he revealed himself to me on August twentieth, 2000. been a Christian for just over 12 years. And there was this new perspective that I had from that day forward. That all of the Bible, I knew what it said, and I, I, I knew the stories, and it was text to me. It was a story to me. But then there was a day where it stopped being a story, and it began being power, and joy, and hope, and meaning. And I couldn't explain it. Why are you doing this? Why is your life changing? Why are you, why are you a new person? Because I love Jesus. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I can't explain it any other way. Paul says it's supposed to be that way. Because there's this perspective that those who know Christ are going to have a different one as they look at their life. If you don't know Christ, if you don't love Christ, if you don't follow Christ, it's not because you're dumb. If you have a neighbor or a coworker or a family member who isn't a Christian, it's not because they're dumb. They don't see it that way because God has not revealed himself to them for whatever reason. So it's easy to say, Christ is my salvation, but you better get your act together so that you can go to heaven. Christ is my salvation, but your your own works and your life and your morality is your salvation. Can't be both ways. So instead we say, God, would you reveal yourself continually to me? Would you reveal yourself to my friend, to my family, to my spouse, to my coworkers, to my neighbors? Would you reveal yourself? Because if you don't, they won't know you. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I give it 
up on my own accord. When we talk about the cross and we look at the pleasure of the cross, we see something so amazing. That as Christ looked at the cross, he had joy. Here's another crazy thing. That God was pleased to secure your salvation by sending his son to die. God was pleased in Jesus Christ to endure the cross. What would make a person endure the cross with pleasure and joy? There's only one reason. Because he loves you. So much that he would come to initiate with you. To make the the message of the cross so profound, so simple, so important, so critical for your life, that you only have two options, to ignore it, to say it's stupid, or to embrace it and say, this is my hope, this is my joy. And in the cross, lastly, we see great hope. You know, we'll be tempted so much to make the centrality of the scriptures and the Bible about something else other than the cross. We make it about kindness. We make it about generosity. We make it about community. What is the Bible all about? Well, it's about being a better person. We can make it about that. We're tempted in so many ways to make the central message of the Bible about something other than the cross. You know what I like to do is in my dealings with people in the community, whether it's a uh, stores. I like to go to the same store, whether it's um, a, a copy store or uh, um, a coffee shop or a grocery market or whatever. I like to do the same thing. One of the reasons, because I'm neurotic and that's what I do. But another reason, more importantly, is because I like to build relationships with these people. I like these people to see me continually over and over again and hopefully having a pathway uh, to stand up to them and say, you know why I'm not afraid to die today? No, not, not exactly like that. But I want to know who these people are, and I want them to know who I am. And I don't just walk into a store and say, Hi, my name's Pete, I'm a pastor, and I'd like a grande coffee. It takes a long time. So this particular store and this clerk that I've been seeing for three years now, we've been talking, she knows I'm a pastor. But I walk into the store, and there's no customers in there, and she says this, You're a pastor, right? She knows I'm a pastor. Well, you know what that means. See, I'll translate it to you. In pastor talk, when someone says, You're a pastor, right? It means, I have some spiritual questions. It's probably going to eat up about an hour or, or if a customer comes in, I'm going to help them, whichever comes last. But you're here until I'm, until I'm done talking. So after three years of talking with her and inviting her to church and, and all those things, she says, you're a pastor, right? I say, I am. And she starts to talk about different things going on in the world and different religions and, and, and Islam and Mormonism and Catholicism and and Buddhism, and all these different things. He says, you know, here's something that I've realized. and I see this common principle working itself through all the different major religions. There's something that they all share. The central message in all of them is the golden rule, a principle of kindness and generosity and charity and benevolence to other people. And if we can just understand that as human beings, that we all go to it towards different perspectives, but we come to the same place, that we want to live well and be kind to one another. And I said to her, I agree. Wait a minute. If the central message of the Bible is the golden rule, then you are right. If the central message of the Bible is that we ought to be kind and good to other people, then you are right. They all are appropriate ways. But if the central message of the Bible is not that, then we have a different conversation. And I said, that's not the central message of the Bible. The central message of the Bible is the cross. You know, if we don't talk about sin, 
if we don't talk about the sacrifice of Christ, if we don't talk about the bloody murder on the cross, if we don't talk about the cross in those ways, then we don't talk about the gospel at all. And there's no good news. If we don't talk about the cross and what Christ did on it, then there is no Christianity, there is no good news. And because of the central message of the Bible being Christ dying for sinners, none of us are without hope. If the central message is about morality, then all of us are without hope. Because the same Bible says that we've all flunked that class. We all, at best, are like C students in our morality. But the central message is not about our morality. It is about the power of God in the cross to meet our greatest need, not happiness, but forgiveness. And if that is the central message of the Bible, then no other religions even stand to it. In pointing them to the cross and in pointing us to the cross, as Paul does here so much, he says, it's about the cross. He says, I, I determined to, not know, to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. I have come to preach Christ and Him crucified. That is my point of being here. Paul wants them, and I want you to live and to figure out what does it mean to live as a true Christian. Now let me explain that. What does it mean to be a true Christian? One of my, one of my favorite authors that I like reading is J. Gresham Machen. It's a long time ago. He's an old guy. He's, he's dead. He's with Jesus. And he defines it. He says, this is what a Christian is. And he puts it in the most simplest terms. And I'm going to put it in the most simplest terms for you. What is a Christian? Are you trying to figure out what a Christian is? If you're here, you want to know that answer. Or if you are a Christian, you're like, yeah, what is a Christian? What am I? Here's what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who's had their sins forgiven. It doesn't get any more simple than that. To be a Christian is to have the power of the cross living and working through you. To be a Christian is to have the work of Christ transforming you and living in you. And that's what Paul wants for us. To live as a Christian. To live each and every day in the reality that we stand before God without guilt. That we stand before God because of what Christ did with hope. That we stand before God not as people who are guilty and shamed, but people that He takes pleasure in, that He loves, that He cherishes, that He would give up everything for. We, li- we stand before God and live our lives as people who couldn't get very far on our own intellect and strength, but God has supplied us all that we need. When we take our eyes off of the cross, you and I will t- continue, because this is what we do, we will continue to try to be holy and right and moral. But we'll find it in something else. We'll find it in ourselves. we'll find it in our kids or our spouse or relationships. When we take our eyes off the cross, we will look for all those things, power and wisdom and hope in other things. We're going to do it. We have to fill that void with something, so we're going to do it with something else. And those things will lead us to the same place, away from God. But the cross is the only thing that leads us towards God. You know what it feels like to grow in your life without the power of the cross working in you. It's exhausting. It's tiring. And honestly, you get sick of it, and sometimes you just want to give up and say, I don't want to do it anymore. It's because you're coasting on your own holiness, your own morality, your own strength. But for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The cross is the power of God. Our name, our church, is Holy Cross Church. I tell people that, and they say, oh, you're a Catholic church. No, 
I sat down and I thought, now it's just too late to change it, you know? And I thought, I sat down and I think, what is central? What is the most important thing? And I talked to others, and this was years ago, and I thought, what is the most important thing that we can be about? And I thought, it's the cross. Because the cross is the literal crux where all humanity comes and Christ meets needs that we can't meet on our own. It is the one thing that every one of you can't get and I can't get on our own. Forgiveness from God. And our hope is in the power of the cross, the holy cross, the pure cross, the sinlessness of Christ to die for us, for you and me, for sinners. What would change in your life? What would be adjusted in your life if you started to live today as a Christian, remembering that simplest definition, to live as someone who has had their sins forgiven before God, where you stand before Him as guiltless? What would change as you look on the cross and you see it, and you say, I believe it, but I don't see the power in my life. God, I want to experience your power in my life. I want to experience your power in my emotions, in my, in my decisions in my relationships. I want to see your power. I want to see your pleasure in me. I want to see the hope that is in you. And if you're on that other side where you're still wrestling with this, I want you to consider what is keeping you from embracing the message of the cross. Is it because it doesn't make sense? What doesn't make sense about it? That you're a sinner? That you need Jesus? That he pursues you and has pleasure in you? Is it other Christians? That's a valid reason. I didn't want to be a Christian because of other Christians. But there's only two ways. We see it as something stupid, or we see it as something transforming. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.